0: Tell your friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, maybe even strangers to listen to. Today's story is about the U.S. labor movement in the late 19th and early 20th centuries and the forces that resisted it. In the United States, two major factors changed the nature of labor significantly in the late 19th century. One of those factors was the Civil War and the 13th Amendment, the eventual result of which was the emancipation of approximately 4 million slaves. This mass emancipation created an enormous economic shift in the South, and many plantation owners resented the loss of absolute control over their labor force. The other major factor was rapid industrialization during the Second Industrial Revolution, also called the Technological Revolution, which was marked by the mechanization of manufacturing, expansion of railroads, iron and steel production, and the beginnings of electrification. With these changes came increased interest in labor organizing. In August 1866, the first national labor group in the United States was formed, called the National Labor Union. After meeting in Baltimore, Maryland, the union made a list of resolutions, which included a resolution for an eight-hour workday over seven decades before the Fair Labor Standards Act mandated overtime pay for work over 40 hours a week. The Noble Order of the Knights of Labor was founded in 1869, and it grew after the National Labor Union collapsed in 1873. By 1880, the Knights of Labor had 28,000 members, and it grew to over 700,000 members by 1886, after leading several important strikes. Membership collapsed in 1886, though, following the Haymarket Square riot in Chicago on May 4, 1886. Several thousand people had gathered there to protest violence by the Chicago police during a strike at the McCormick Reaper Works, in which several workers were killed and wounded. The Haymarket Square protest started peacefully, but someone, whose identity is still unknown, through a bomb. The police opened fire, and in the resulting chaos, seven Chicago police officers and four other people were killed. The Knights of Labor were blamed for the violence, and workers fled the organization. Many of those fleeing workers joined the newly formed American Federation of Labor, AFL an umbrella organization of craft unions, led by Samuel Gompers. The AFL boasted 500,000 members by 1900. These newly formed labor organizations were active, leading a combined 23,000 strikes between 1881 and 1900. Employers noticed and fought back sometimes literally workers at steel mills in homestead pennsylvania near pittsburgh had bargained as members of the amalgamated association and iron and steel workers for a favorable contract with good wages but millionaire andrew carnegie who owned homestead steel works and its manager henry frick wanted to break the union. When the contract was up in 1892, management demanded pay cuts and provoked a strike. Frick hired agents from the Pinkerton National Detective Agency, well known for their union-busting activities, including infiltrating unions and breaking strikes. Frick had planned to sneak... 300 of the agents, into town on river barges. But the information leaked, and thousands of workers and others from the town gathered to keep them out. Gunfire and physical fighting broke out, killing seven workers and three Pinkerton agents. Frick requested the presence of the National Guard and 8,500 National Guardsmen took control of the town. Carnegie and Frick refused to negotiate any further with the Amalgamated Association, which collapsed. Despite enormous profits for the Carnegie Steel Company in the ensuing years, employee wages were slashed and work shifts increased. Union organizing among steel workers didn't recover until World War I. Meanwhile, in Shoshone County, Idaho, miners had begun to organize into unions in the 1880s. In response, the mine owners formed a mine owners association. Mine owners introduced machines that replaced some of the workers, and they followed up by reducing pay to the mine workers while increasing their work hours. With these and other grievances, the mine workers went on strike, leading the mine owners to advertise for new workers, strikebreakers, in Michigan. When the replacement workers arrived by train, armed strikers would meet them and threaten them. Like Frick, the mine owners hired private detectives from both the Pinkerton Agency and the Thiel Detective Agency to infiltrate the union and report back. In the early morning hours of July 11th, strikers opened fire on one of the mill buildings. The guards, having been warned by Pinkerton agents, were prepared and returned fire. The fighting continued at other mines, with several deaths and mass injury. After the governor declared martial law, the Idaho National Guard and federal troops arrived. 600 miners were confined in bullpens. Large stockades, where they were kept without hearings or even formal charges. Many for as long as two months, and some for longer. Surprisingly, the Supreme Court in March 1893 determined that the authorities had overreached in their mass arrests, and freed the men who had been convicted and imprisoned. At the end of April 1899, violence again broke out in Coeur Idaho, when union workers seized a train and dynamited a mine during a labor dispute. President William McKinley sent the army to Idaho at the request of the governor. The army indiscriminately rounded up around 1,000 men and incarcerated them in bullpens, even chasing fleeing men into Montana and dragging them back to Idaho. The conditions of the bullpens were so miserable that three prisoners died. Although many who had been arrested were freed within a couple of weeks, the last of the prisoners were not released until December. These examples demonstrate only some of the many violent techniques used to quell labor organizing. Joining me now to help us learn much more about the story of employers and elites resisting labor organizing is Dr. Chad Pearson a lecturer at the University of North Texas, and author of Capitals Terrorists, Klansmen, Lawmen, and Employers in the Long 19th Century. Who makes my heart beat with pride, with a joy I can't hide, as they work side by side, labor, Never fails to come through For the red, white, and blue With the work they can do Labor Who hears the morning call And starts out on the run Who doesn't rest at all Until the job is done Who doesn't shirk Any honest work L-A-B-O-R always fought tyranny through the world's history suffered for liberty labor that's why my heart beats with pride with a joy i can't hide as they march side by side labor hi
1: chad welcome
0: thanks so much for joining me
1: today thanks for having me
0: yeah so uh, i want to start by asking how you got started on this topic. I know this is a a topic you've been working on for a while in various formats. Uh, You know, how how you sort of got into looking at labor and labor struggles from the point of view of the the sort of anti labor side of things.
1: (laughs) Certainly. My family is from Worcester, Massachusetts, and Worcester is uh, the second largest city, second or third in all of New England but is known for not having unions or not having strong unions and that kind of thing. And so uh, back when I was in, um, really as an undergrad, I kind of wanted to understand what was going on there. And so that led me to uh, a case study, a series of case studies of Worcester and the employers in Worcester uh, who were really, uh, I don't want to say they were pioneers in the anti-union open shop movement, but they were certainly very big. They were nationally recognized. And so that intro led me to look at other cities. And I, I wrote a book, um, my first book called Reform or Repression, looked at a number of different cities and the anti-union uh, employers in those cities. And, uh, and so that sort of got me started. And I identify as a labor historian, but I really, I do enjoy studying elites and their acts of thuggery and anti-unionism. And there, it's such a rich area and somewhat underexplored. So I, after I finished that book, I was Uh, I discovered a fair amount of violence that was inflicted by these employers and their agents, and I wanted to look uh, more broadly at that. And so my second book, the topic uh, primarily of of today's uh, show, is about the different um, forms of anti-labor violence unleashed by, by employers.
0: Yeah. You uh, you mentioned the term open shop. So I want to make sure people sort of understand that to the sort of what is open shop, closed shop. Could you talk a little bit about that terminology?
1: Certainly. So labor unions uh, members believe that everybody should be a member of the union, pay dues, enjoy the benefits, maybe go on strike together. It's fundamentally about solidarity. Employers, meanwhile, do not like any kind of huge opposition from below. And so when, when workers talk about you know coming together in, in a workplace, they often refer to a, a closed shop. That is, as a precondition to work uh, in a particular location, you must hold a union membership. And so employers uh, look at that and say, no, we should have an open shop. That is, one should be able to work in a particular workplace irrespective of their union status. Okay, It's a promotion of individualism over collectivism. Uh, and so rather than, you know, uh, they would put it, be some slave to the union, you should be an individual and have the right to to work in a particular work site. And so rhetorically, employers will talk about it doesn't matter if you're a union member or not, but they preferred non-union members, right? And and uh they wanted to uh can, uh, you know, unions uh, negotiate things like pay and benefits. Uh, employers want to manage unilaterally for the most part. And uh, an open shop allows them the flexibility to hire and fire at will to give benefits or not give benefits. And so rhetorically, it's a very powerful, powerful um, tool on the employer side. Open shop. I asked my students, what sounds better, <laughs> closed shop or open shop? And if you don't know, right, yeah. open shop sounds much better.
0: Yes, the employers, uh, as we'll continue to discuss, are very good at rhetoric.
1: <laughs> yes, no doubt, no doubt.
0: You mentioned that this is kind of uh, underexplored, this idea of looking at the employers, at the elites, and the, the violence. Uh, and part of that, of course, is because some of them were secretive in what they were doing. They weren't keeping records. So can you talk some about what, uh, how you go about researching groups that are trying to keep secret uh, what they are doing or who they are, what their membership is?
1: Right, right. Uh, it's, it's certainly very challenging be, because of the hyper secrecy. And so I start with the Ku Klux Klan, who I argue were an employer's association. And anybody who looks at the Klan knows they are by definition secretive. They wore masks and they had secret rituals. And their documentation highlights that, you know, they will not reveal to anyone. But there is enough evidence from, from uh, primarily from, you know, letters written by former Klansmen, um, from victims of, of the Klan. And you can see similar things as we look at some of the other groups I explore. So I look at uh, law and order leagues. These were businessmen associations who promoted, you know, who were involved in anti-union causes. They too were very secretive. But there's, you know, uh, newspaper accounts um, and uh, labor uh, accounts of their their uh, hooligan behavior. Um, I look at citizens' alliances, and they had their own propaganda that they put out. But also, we can find again newspaper accounts, some letters. Uh, it's challenging. It's challenging work, but you know, there's I think enough there to 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 identify some of the um, uh, the thuggish acts actions that they took.
0: Yeah. So you you just mentioned the KKK, and I think that the context, the historical context of being just after the Civil War, and the the decades that you write about are sort of all just following the Civil War is so important. There's so much that goes back to sort of how people who, who they were in the Civil War, what they were doing in the Civil War, what their relationship with the war and the outcomes of the war was. So, Can you sort of place us in that historical context? What, what's going on just after the Civil War throughout the country? And how does that lead to some of this rise in, in violence on the part of employers and elites?
1: Certainly. So um, so I began around the period of the, the Civil War, and I take uh, from Du Bois, W.B. Du Bois, um, I take seriously this idea of the general strike. That is, the four million slaves played a part. That is, they, they were involved in this self-emancipation project of freeing themselves, shutting down this, this form of, of labor. And so, of course, it's a military conflict, but it was also a labor conflict. And so then the question becomes, what happened to the planners, the elites, after they lost their labor. And so many of them joined vigilante organizations, including, most prominently, the Ku Klux Klan. And the Ku Klux Klan was involved in trying to force these former slaves back onto the plantations, uh, whipping them for demonstrating uh, disrespectful behavior, and seeking to keep out any of these so-called carpetbaggers, that is, the, the Northerners who would go down to teach schools and whatnot. And so I don't believe that they, they hated, per se, uh, the former slaves. They wanted their labor. And so I focused there mostly on exploitation, not hate, right? Uh, they wanted folks to shut up and work. That was the bottom line. And so I start with them, and I, I look at some of their techniques. And, and throughout the book, I talk about what I call hard, soft, and hybrid forms of violence. And a hard form might be whippings, kidnappings, uh, murder, shooting people a soft form might be book burning or blacklisting and then a hybrid form what i call these drive out campaigns and these were events where plansmen, law and order leagues and citizens alliances would target who they considered outside agitators and they would this would involve generally a four step process you know isolate intimidate expel and then blacklist right find them intimidate them force them out and if they didn't behave physically force them out maybe even killing them and so I start with the Klan, and then I follow this into the Midwest, and I look at um, some more traditional labor strikes like uh, the 1886 Southwest rail strike staged primarily by the, the Knights of Labor. And here we have you know Jay Gould, this uh, enormously powerful capitalist, uh, really pissed off about the shutdown of his rail operation, and we have all these upper-middle-class folks from towns like Sedalia uh, – Missouri and Parsons, uh, Kansas, as well as big cities like St. Louis and Little Rock, coming together and forming businessmen, militias, what they artfully called law and order leagues. <laughs> and uh, they physically fought strikers. They helped strike breakers, uh, uh, get to their their work sites, and um, and then they blacklisted uh, activists. And then there are other events. Uh, I talk about um, different strikes uh, involving coal miners. Uh, lead miners, and uh, and here too, you have the involvement of businessmen actively getting their hands dirty and punishing these people through you know various forms of violence, kidnapping, uh, incarcerations, and uh, and even killing.
0: Yeah, and these hard forms of violence are just uh, kind of shocking, and it, it's not difficult to imagine in today's world uh, employers trying to shut down a union. That certainly still happens extensively. But the idea of actually kidnapping and deporting right. <laughs> uh, out of the country even, yeah. or locking up in bullpens for, you know, months, like that, that is just kind of a shocking level of violence. Did that seem shocking at the time? Like, you know, is this sort of part and parcel of what life is like at the in the late 19th century, or is it shocking even then?
1: I think it was shocking even then. I mean, these are extreme examples, but then there's a question of accountability. Mm -hmm. Was there any accountability for these ruling class thugs? And the answer is largely no, right? And I talk about what I call the enablers, that is the politicians, the judges, the cops, these folks mostly sided with employers. Now, we can point to exceptions. But I'm not one of these folks who believes in this autonomy of the state stuff. There's some sociologists, oh, you know, got to win, you know, support. No, no, nonsense. Uh, these, you know, the state really served the interests of the of the ruling class. And, you know, I know this sounds like, you know, crude Marxism, but I think the <laughs> historical record backs that that up. Right. And so at the same time, the victims found these uh, these events uh, and, and sober minded observers found them horrendous. So, for example, in Florida, in Tampa, we have a case in 1901 where members of a citizen's committee kidnap, about 100 of them, kidnap 13 members of the leaders of the cigar workers union. They put them on a boat and they bring them to Honduras and they leave them there. Right. They leave them there. And then the press learns about this. And say, This is great. Unfortunately, it's illegal, but this is great <laughs> stuff. And then these these employers in Colorado, they do it. They don't they don't. Uh, kidnap folks and force them out of the country, but they kidnap them, they put them on trains, and they tell them don't come back. okay? This is from the vantage point of of union fighting employers, this is a really innovative technique to deal with the so-called labor problem. The bullpens, right? Uh, one source said this is the introduction. this is the first case of the concentration camp. I don't know if that's true, but one person said that. There are historians who look to Cuba and the Spaniards. As the first case, this predates that, right? The the Spanish case was what 18 1896 1897. This was 1892. Okay, in Idaho, mass arrest people, throw them in these the makeshift uh, uh, prisons, and let them linger there for a while, and then you know, do it do it again in, in 1899, right? And it worked. It worked. If we look if we look at the kidnap case in in Tampa. They busted the union. Cigar manufacturing went up. It worked. If we look at the lead and silver mining in northern Idaho, they locked these people up. They scared them. Right. Some people died, but the union went away. Right. Or at least for a while. Right. It went away for a while and they were able to increase profits. And they got backing from President Benjamin Harrison in 1892 and then McKinley in 1899. America. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean that—that's sort of the—it's uh, it, all shocking. But the—the the idea that you know it's not just like a corrupt mayor, governor who's maybe in on it. It's like up, no, all the way up to the president of the United States. Several presidents mm, are that's involved right, in that's this. Right. I think the thing that I come back to again and again when I'm looking at, at labor and how far employers will go to stop unionization and and labor rights is how much money they must be spending on some of this. Like it's not Mm -hmm. cheap to kidnap people and ship them off to Honduras and they didn't leave them with very much, but still they left them with a little bit, you know, like how much were people really asking for that
1: that it was cheaper
0: and more efficient to to do this?
1: (laughs) Sure. I think it's a great question. And I think when we think about unions, sometimes our automatic inclination is to think this is about wages, but really it's about dignity and power above all else, right? and so if you look you know at, at union busting activities in any period it's really about not uh, giving power to workers and fighting tooth and nail to maintain that unilateral uh, managerial you know position right and so so this was you know we're not going to allow some union to dictate to us right that uh, that creates a slippery slope if we give in here then we're going to continue to give in and and before you know it um uh, we're going to have we're going to have no power and so i think when we we Reframe it, right? We take away. We rather than think about wages uh, and benefits, and think about power relationships in the workplace. Um, some of it kind sort of makes sense, even though it's completely outlandish. The the <laughs> techniques that they employed.
0: Yeah. So I, I want to talk some about rhetoric. Uh, you mentioned earlier law and order, and that you know it 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 is ironically these people who are breaking the law by doing things like kidnapping who are saying that what they are doing is, is keeping law in order, that they are, in fact, uh, promoting the law and are, are going to get in the way of anyone who wants to take the law into their own hands. So can you talk some about that, that sort of rhetorical spin, what is going on here, and how it is that they're successful in using this kind of rhetoric?
1: Right, right. Well, I think it's vigilantism, right? I mean, the definition of vigilantism is to break the law, to uphold the law, or a certain type of law, Right, mm-hmm. and uh, and 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 unionists know this. Unionists and and socialists who are victims, uh, who are victims of their their thuggery, uh, understood this. But you know, it's it's about the question of the golden rule. Those with the gold make the rule, right? And so we have the you know the folks at the top of society are going to look the other way, and the meaning you know politicians and and judges. Uh, not always, not always, but in mm-hmm. general, they allow this to to sort of happen. And again, there's a question of, 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 of uh, who, who's able to frame the story, right? And so I talk about what I call the narrative creators. So there's plenty of newspaper um, writers and magazine writers, church leaders, who are able to shape uh, the narrative in a way that served the interests of the um, those at the top of society. So when those at the top of society broke the law – to enforce the law, well, the uh, newspapers are going to focus on the righteousness of their campaigns, right, as mm-hmm. opposed to point out the, you know, the the, the law breaking.
0: Yeah, and it's not just in the law and order that they're using this rhetoric either. I, they're also playing with this idea of. Scabs as being, you know, sort of the 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 hardworking people. That That's right. <laughs> that we should be supporting. You know, what what else is going on here with this language and the way that they are talking about sort of unions as bad guys and everybody else,
1: sure, <laughs> sort sure. Of the good guys. There, there's so much involved in it, right? So we we talked about the open shop versus a closed mm-hmm. shop, and rhetorically, clearly, open shop sounds better. But it's not only that; it's you know unions were able i think and arguably are continue to be able to point to strike breakers as that's a very stigmatizing thing right the, the word scab okay employers generally employers and their spokespersons generally would refer to these people as free laborers or free workers as opposed to some slave to the union right so when we think about language free right union is constraining you the unions are undermining ones you know independence and independence is good so you have free worker, the language right to work. Of course, um, we have you know 28 right to work states. That language is rooted in this period that I write about. And then there's a lot of flag waving, a lot of patriotism, a lot of Americanization. That is, anti-unionism is fundamentally American uh, from mm-hmm. the perspective of some of these folks. And so some of the union-busting organizations – uh, paradoxically called an, you know these anti-union unions <laughs> talk about you know the the americanness of it and the importance of of respecting the institutions of this country and how unions constitute a threat to all of that
0: yeah and then they're they're even sort of uh, acting like they're the the ones who are progressive <laughs> like they're the the employers are the ones who are on the side of the the working common man you know that's right <laughs> were, were people buying this was this working
1: it, it's difficult to know mm-hmm. you know if the the message that they articulated that they disseminated was bought by ordinary people but this is an excellent point because what we see at the turn of the century, the so-called progressive era, what I call the misnamed progressive era, is some of these employers who are who have roots in the fights of the, the late 19th century form these citizens' alliances. Now, let's mm-hmm. just pause for a moment and consider that citizens' alliances, okay? These are bosses, but you're, they're drawing attention. They drew attention away from their own class privileges and talk broadly about being members of a citizens' alliance, okay? And nationally, they came together in the Citizens Industrial Association of America. And we have former Klansmen, we have former Law and Order League folks, we have folks from the Montana Vigilantes. They're all part of this massive anti union organization. And so, in the late 19th century, much of the language was about fighting the dangerous classes. When we turn, when we come into the early 20th century, it's about protecting the common people, Mm. right? Meaning that you're going to protect the non union folks. Right? These are the guardians of non-unionists protecting their interests from these tyrannical unions. That's pretty powerful language. right? And so free labor, right? This is you – know, we want to protect the free labor of these people.
0: So we've been talking a lot about class for obvious reasons but in this country you can't ever totally separate out class and race and mm-hmm. and what that looks like and and certainly you talk about that some in the book and we started off talking about the the KKK and you know the your argument that this is an employer organization uh, but it's obviously also about race and and looking at race so can you talk some about in in this sort of time period, post-Civil War, Reconstruction, what this relationship between race and class and, and how it's playing out and how that sort of intersects with the employer violence that you're looking at?
1: So I want to be clear. I, I am. There's there's a tendency that some people say labor historians might be class reductionists and everything is about class. And I don't believe that. But having said that, I'm looking at elites, and I'm looking Mm -hmm. at their relationship to workers uh, across racial racial lines. So uh, racism, of course, crosses class class lines, and there's lots of examples of white workers seeking to keep uh, African-Americans and Asian-Americans out of their unions. That history is very well established. And I think we can talk about hate, right? We can talk about the hate that many white workers, not all, had for um, African-Americans, but my focus is more on exploitation. That is, I'm looking at employers and those in positions of power and looking at how they can exploit, use racism to their advantage, right? And so I look at this sort of classic divide and conquer, these classic divide and conquer uh, techniques uh, that 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 are, uh, find expression throughout the late 19th and early 20th century. So when I talk about the Klan, I talk about how, you know, these... These folks um, in leadership, most of whom were privileged, I think most historians would agree with that, they saw African-Americans as serving primarily one function that is to work for them. Okay. When we get into later periods, late 19th, early 20th century, uh, there are a number of strikes and there are cases of um, white employers collaborating with those in the South, including Black elites, securing the services of Black workers as strikebreakers. Okay. And so the introduction of black workers into struck uh, workplaces or into these settings produced lots of additional conflict. And I think there's a fair amount of evidence to show that employers, those who called the shots, were well aware of the racial divisions within the working class and that this was a way to generate tension below and to deflect um, some tension that would be directed toward them. So I see. Uh, uh, I, again, I do not deny the racism embraced by by white workers, but I'm looking at how employers from again the Klan up through the turn of the century really viewed uh, black workers and saw them as an asset.
0: Yeah. Another thing you talk about in the book is this idea of continuity that you know this this is sort of really one story. So there's a lot of sort of disparate events and there's different people involved, but. But there is a continuation here of the the kind of violence that is is happening and other people see it. There's some players that are sort of in all of these moments uh, or coming back in different moments and different combinations together. Can you talk about that and why it's important to sort of look at that overall picture?
1: Certainly, certainly. So I think a lot of folks who write about management, broadly defined, are are fixated on professionalization and modernity, and looking at people like Frederick Taylor who um, organized workplaces in a very efficient, methodical way. Uh, historians might look at uh, new benefits and how workplaces became more humane and more inviting and and modern and all of that. And I say, sure, that's true, but let's look at the the, the continuation of violent employer-generated uh, thuggery, mm-hmm. right? And so. I look at the Klan again, you know, start there um, and look at their their managerial practices and see the drive out campaigns, the kidnappings, the whippings, and the book burnings continue into the misnamed Progressive Era, right? And so, so a lot of these employers, you know, they might see themselves as as modern and progressive, right? But there's also that dark side. And when they went to their conferences and they talked about, say, a kidnapping escapade, or they talked about bringing out guns and intimidating strikers, these are the stories that got the most play. These are the stories that excited the membership more so than the latest, you know, I don't know, um, uh, time clock study that you know increased efficiency in you know one one section of of a factory. And so I think it's important to 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 be mindful. Of those um, those sorts of events that uh, in today's business schools, when they teach business history, probably omit that part of the story.
0: <laughs> so we we've made a couple of allusions to the the sort of current day, uh, certainly with right to work states and and things like that. We're seeing what appears to be sort of a, a rise in unionization after a long period of it sort of declining that the people are once again interested in, in unions and organizing, labor organizing. So what if there are, you know, what sort of lessons do you think we might be able to draw from this early period about what the reaction of management might be? What sorts of things, hopefully not kidnapping and murder, but yeah. <laughs> you know, what what sorts of things might we see? If labor organizing is on the rise, you know, on the management side. Right.
1: Well, I think uh, very broadly, the ruthlessness of employers is is something that uh, was very present in the late 19th, early 20th century and remains present today, okay? Mm. Including by, you know, Starbucks, uh, especially maybe Starbucks or Amazon, folks who might identify as being progressive employers, really good on, on issues of gender and race and LGBTQ issues, right? But when it comes to unions, no way, right? And so we have these. Two hundred plus Starbucks that organized, but there's no contract yet. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think there might be some negotiations going on somewhere, but incredible ruthlessness. And um, and you know, we don't see a lot in the way of of thuggery. But you know, uh, I think Chris Smalls of Amazon's gotten arrested. You know, they'll send in their private security. They'll send in uh, cops. You know, uh, Biden wants all these more co- you know more cops on the street. I don't think there's any question. Uh, what side police are on when when things escalate and there's a strike? I think that's that's very clear. W- will we get um, Jeff Bezos going out there with you know baseball bat? I don't think so, but you know uh, who knows? You know, I have a I have a student uh, a few years back who worked at a very popular restaurant bar and uh, was uh, was a bartender there, and he made a mistake on his drink, and his boss came in, the owner, and like punched him, and he 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 called the cops. He called the cops, and they did nothing. They did. They did nothing, right? And he had. To, he lost his job, right? I, and there's other anecdotes like that. I don't want to sort of overstate it, but I think some of these people, right? They feel, you know, that they obviously not, most employers are not going to punch their employees. I realize that, but you know, when these these things happen, you know, there's that 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 power relationship there. Yeah. So you know, it still happens. There's still there's still aggressive aggressive employers out there.
0: Yeah. So I, I, hopefully people are now very interested in uh, this story. How can people get a copy of
1: your book? Certainly. It's um, University of North Carolina Press. And I have
0: sung the praises of UNC Press on this show many times.
1: Yes. Oh, fantastic. So wonderful. You know, if it's 40% off, which is a good deal, I think. Um, and the code is 01DAH40. Again, that's 01DAH40. And they will get uh, 40% off at checkout. And so um, would be honored if people would read it, debate it, discuss it, argue with me. And uh, hopefully we will... uh uh I, I, I want to play my small part in, in rescuing the word terrorism from the Islamophobes. Uh, and uh, I think, um, you know, hopefully I can get one of these fellowships at Brookings or Rand and I can <laughs> talk about, you know, the problem of, of employer terrorism. But I doubt it. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, thank you, Chad. This was fun. And uh, I always enjoy learning things that I, I hadn't realized. Uh some of it was a little horrifying, but it, it was good to learn. <laughs>
1: okay, <laughs> wonderful. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate your interest in this. Was, this is a great, great, uh, great thrill for me. Thanks for listening to Unsung History. You can find the sources used for this episode at unsunghistorypodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio and images used by Unsung History are in the public domain or are used with permission. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram at unsung underscore underscore history or on facebook at unsung history podcast to contact us with questions or episode suggestions please email kelly at unsung history podcast.com if you enjoyed this podcast please rate and review and tell your friends msw